Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, cultural enrichment, and all-inclusive fares. Discover more at viking.com. From the opinion pages of the Wall Street Journal, this is Free Expression with Jerry Baker. Hello and welcome to Free Expression with me, Jerry Baker, from the Wall Street Journal editorial page. Thank you very much for joining us. If you're not already, please be sure to subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you get your podcasts. And please remember to leave us a nice review. Free expression, we believe, of course, is essential to a healthy democracy, and it's very much under threat these days. So each week on this podcast, we aim to contribute by having a wide-ranging, candid conversation with leading practitioners and commentators in the worlds of politics, business, technology, academia, the arts and culture, and others, exploring in depth the themes, people, and topics shaping our world. Pleased to say my guest this week is Dennis Prager. Dennis is a leading conservative commentator, writer, and radio talk show host with the widely followed Dennis Prager Show, which has been nationally syndicated across America for more than two decades. Dennis began life in political advocacy, helping persecuted Soviet Jewry during the Cold War. He's been a passionate proponent of freedom from authoritarian repression ever since. President Ronald Reagan appointed him to the US Commission to the review of the Helsinki Accords between the West and the Soviet bloc. And President George H.W. Bush picked him as a member of the Holocaust Memorial Council. Throughout his long career, he's been an outspoken critic of the march of progressive ideology through America's cultural and political institutions and others, and a defender of the religious, moral, political values on which America was founded. He founded himself PragerU, which seeks, through short, instructive videos, to convey conservative ideas and values to a wider audience. He's written numerous books on politics, culture, and life lessons, the latest of which is The Ten Commandments, Still the Best Moral Code. And Dennis Prager joins me now. Dennis, thank you very much indeed for being here. I wish my mother were alive to have heard that. <laughs> That's the old line about, uh, I wish my parents were around. My mother would have loved it and my father would have believed it. Exactly, yes. Thank you very much indeed. And I want to get into all of these topics which you discuss, that which we on the editorial page of the Wall Street Journal address too. But let's start, if we may, since you have been very much at the forefront of this contention in American politics and culture for 50 years at least, and it's intensified in the last 20 years. People talk a lot about polarization and they talk a lot about the mutual hostility that exists now between Americans. And when you listen to it, when you listen to people on either side of this debate, you hear the way they talk about what matters to them and you hear the way they talk about their opponents. And they talk about their opponents in ways that are extremely derogatory, derisory about their American opponents. And I wonder, especially I wonder as an immigrant to this country who came to this country because he loves this country and admires so much about it, how on earth does this country ever come through all this again as a unified... We've had great intense political debates right through American history, but right now it does seem a particular moment of intense partisan hostility. How do we come through this, Dennis, as a unified country, as a unified political entity? I think the only honest answer is that one side has to prevail and make its arguments so powerful or suppress the other so effectively that there is a unity in either bad ideas or a unity in good ideas. That is the reason for the editorial page of the Wall Street Journal. It's the reason for PragerU. It's the reason for talk radio. We are trying to win the public debate. What is unique is not that. What is unique 
is that for the first time in American history, a serious percentage of Americans think it is okay to censor the other side, to use the current term to cancel the other side. And I know why the left wants to do this. I've been a student of the left since I was a graduate student at Columbia University's School of International Affairs, the Russian Institute. I read Pravda every day, the Soviet communist newspaper, in order to study the left. There is no example in history of the left not suppressing speech. And they do it because they cannot win arguments. They can only win by suppression. And that is what we are seeing now with Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, Google, etc. Wherever possible, and certainly at the universities, they censor the other voices. If we were allowed free expression, we could unify a great many Americans around the great ideas that made America, and I call it the American Trinity, the three ideas found on every coin, liberty, e pluribus unum, and God we trust. There is no other country in history that had those three as its mottos, and that's what we're fighting for, and that's what they're fighting against. You put that very, very well, and it's interesting you pick those three values, those three concepts in particular, because I want to talk again about a lot of these in detail, but let's start with that. Part of the challenge, I think, is so, you know, liberty is clearly under threat in all kinds of ways, exactly as you've described, the degree of censorship, the degree of control that particularly left-dominated authorities want to exercise. E pluribus unum, the idea of out of many, one. Again, this is not a country right now where that seems like an accepted principle. People want to win at all costs, right? It doesn't matter. They don't accept really almost that the other side has any rights. And and in God we trust. I mean, you know, many, many Americans have abandoned traditional religion. Well, let me put it this way. For a democracy to work, and the founding fathers were very conscious of this because they were exploring and they were creating a republic, not a democracy. For a constitutional republic to work, along democratic principles. There has to be the consent of the minority. It has to be the consent that the minority, when you lose an election, the ideas that you believe in, the policies, the principles that you favor don't manage to win, whether they don't manage to win an election or they don't manage to get validated by a court decision, you have to accept the other side. You lose an election, you accept that the other side won and we move on and we try and refight the next election and win that one. Again, on both sides now... There isn't that willingness to accept defeat that people talked in 2016. I remember very vividly on the right about the Flight 93 election, that if we lost this election in 2016, we were going to lose our country. And so it sort of raised the stakes to a level that I think people would never talk about in the past. Do you think that's where we are now? We're on both sides. People want what they want so much that they just think that it's actually the niceties of democracy and of the rule of law and all of the things that we've stood by in procedure, they're just gone. And we just have to fight now for what we want. This is a very tough uh, question for me personally. So it may be emotionally difficult, but it is not in any other way difficult for me, a conservative, to acknowledge when a Democrat wins. They win, they win. But as much as I would like to believe that there is no possible way in which there was cheating in the last election, and I have, by the way, for the record, I almost never talk about it. It is not dominant in in my thinking. I was not present on January 6th. I also think that January 6th is being used the way the Germans used uh, the Reichstag fire, frankly. But I don't know if there is an equilibrium. It is one thing to believe the other side cheated. It is another thing to believe that 
I cannot accept the results because they're not the results I wanted. Those are not the same things. It is very possible that for the first time in American history, an incumbent president won more votes than he did in the first election and lost. That's possible. But whenever there are firsts, anomalies, it's like my belief, because I just finished my third volume of my Bible commentary, Deuteronomy, and I'm very steeped in this stuff. I have never once argued that God's existence is provable. I show the likelihood. And so it's not a perfect analogy by any means, but we work in much of life on likelihoods. So I have no proof that Donald Trump won the last election, and I have never claimed that he did, not once. But it is wrong to dismiss as conspiratorial, anti-democratic, etc., to harbor doubts. As I have pointed out frequently, every Democrat I know, and that is important because I always make a distinction between leftists and liberals, but both liberals and leftists believed that Donald Trump is a fascist, Nazi-loving racist. And if you believe that, give me one moral argument why you would not cheat if you could. I would. If I could prevent a Nazi from taking over America, I would cheat. I think you're morally obligated to. So if they're morally obligated to, and there were all these anomalies, it's just not right to say everyone who thinks the last election, anyone who questions it is a crackpot or a fanatic or QAnon or so on. Thank you. I do want to press you on that because the flip side of what you've just said about, you know, believing if Democrats, if progressives really believe what they said about Donald Trump, then why wouldn't they cheat? I think there's something to that. Flip side of that also is, you know, we were told by the media, by Democrats, by you know, impeachment committees for three years. They said he was illegitimate. They said he colluded with Russia. They said he was guilty of, you know, essentially something close to treason. And we learned that that just wasn't true. Um, You know, we don't have to defend everything Donald Trump did. And he did some very strange things, we can all say. But the efforts that they made to try and prove that he had committed collusion with the Russia came to nothing. Then it's a question of trust, isn't it, Dennis, that people who supported Donald Trump and who had to put up with that for three years then come along and then they have an election. And by the way, they see all kinds of things going on in that election, changes to the voting procedures and everything else. The trust has gone, hasn't it? So when Democrats or the government or the media tell those people, don't worry, the election result was fine, Donald Trump lost and everything was above board and everything. I do understand. And by the way, I'm going to get on to this. I'm not in any way going to defend what happened on January 6th. I think what happened on January 6th was a disgrace. My broader point is that the trust that is absolutely essential when you're trying to say to one side, look, you know, you lost, you're out of power. That trust has been eroded and it's not all Donald Trump's fault. It's not all Donald Trump supporters' fault. In fact, a lot of the reason for the decline in trust is the way in which the media and the establishment has behaved. Isn't that true? I say it all the time. I know the left as well as I know my family. Not all, but it's the only thing that I have, other than the Bible, that I have studied virtually every day of my life. It's why I learned Russian in order to read Pravda. I went to communist countries regularly. My first article published was in National Review when I was 23 years old, and I went to Poland and I, uh, when it was still communist. It's just a fact of life that truth is not a left-wing value. It is a liberal value. It is a conservative value. It is not a left-wing value. Equity is a left-wing value. 
social justice, the way they define it is a left-wing value. Progressive ideas are a left-wing value. All black dorms is a left-wing value. I mean, it's endless, but truth is not. So when you speak of a breakdown in trust, you are entirely right because the left has taken over so many institutions. 51 heads of American intelligence agencies signed a statement a month before the 2020 election saying that the Hunter Biden laptop was Russian disinformation. I so loved our institutions that when I was at the School of International Affairs, and I'm sure that somewhere in CIA files, I applied to the CIA. When you said CIA or FBI to me, there was this immediate sense of, whoa, these are special people. I think they are as corrupt at the leadership of all of these institutions, including the American Medical Association, as they are in any third world country. I trust nothing in my beloved country any longer that is institutional. And I have a reason not to in every single case. The American Medical Association announced two years ago, that it opposes birth certificates listing the sex of a child because it's not determined by birth. That's the American Medical Association. Your paper, God bless it, just reported on the American Academy of Medical Schools. Medical colleges, yeah. Yes, of medical colleges, right. How they have now decided is as important for you to learn about systemic racism as a medical student as it is about medicine. I'm sure every one of us is delighted to know that my doctor will spend so many hours studying about systemic racism. So the crisis is unique in American history. 45% of American young people don't believe in free speech for hate speech, which they don't even realize because they went to college and they were taught how not to think. What an oxymoronic a statement that is. The whole point of free speech is that what you consider hate speech is free. The Nazis were permitted to march in Skokie, Illinois in the 1970s because despite the fact that there were so many Holocaust survivors living there, which is why they chose it, these low lives. But virtually every Jewish organization understood. In America, even Nazis have free speech. But in on a campus today, a liberal doesn't have free speech. What's happened, Dennis? I find myself having this conversation with a lot of people, including on this podcast. Again, you're a student of the Cold War. To some extent, it seems to me that a lot of what's happened in the last 20 years has been a kind of continuation of the essential conflict of the Cold War in a different context. During the Cold War, we fought between essentially Marxism, if you like, and liberal democracy, for want of a better way of describing it, freedom on the other side. And Marxism was back then was primarily at least economic in its kind of concept. And we won that war comprehensively. I mean, not only did we win it in terms of the military and political superiority, but because of the moral superiority of what we stood for, freedom and those values. But it does seem to me that what we're seeing now is say, kind of a continuation of that Cold War. The Marxist concept, the Marxist structure, the Marxist interpretation has moved into this new idea now that somehow that, that there's still a continuing a system of oppression in which the oppressor class is kind of like privileged white males, cisgendered males, whatever the terminology is, and minorities and women is sort of everybody else. And I wonder what you think of that, whether you think it is in a sense just the same, you know, what the Marxists call dialectic through history. We saw it through the brief pause after the end of the Cold War and it's been resumed with the kind of much more kind of worrying implication that they do seem to have got much more of a foothold in the United States than they ever did during the Cold War. That's exactly right. The human being is not capable 
of being irreligious. It's not built into the human being. So when you get rid of, in the West, the traditional Judeo-Christian religions, Judaism, Catholicism, Protestantism, Mormonism, and all the various offshoots, something will have to fill its place. So we now have all these secular religions, environmentalism and feminism, Marxism, humanism, you name the ism, and it is a substitute for Christianity largely because that's the dominant religion in the West. And people hold it with the same fervor that believing Christians and Jews hold the respective religions. The, the battle, which I am convinced, is overwhelmingly traceable to secularism. The secular conservative has made a terrible mistake, thinking that conservative American values, traditional American values, can prevail without God and the Bible. I don't care if a conservative is an atheist personally. It's of no interest to me. I know atheists who are as committed to the sustaining of Judeo-Christian values as I am. And I know people who believe in God who have contempt for traditional Judeo-Christian values. I wrote a, a column recently on that very subject. The Church of the Covenant in Boston, one of the most beautiful churches in the country, has a gigantic banner hanging on the front of its church. God says, and then all, all it is, is about every woke position you could possibly have. So I don't know anything about your values if you believe in God, and I don't know anything about your values if you don't believe in God. I only know what you believe in. So if you believe in any of these leftist things, to get back to your question, you're entirely right. The Cold War battle is now domestic. That's what's changed. Communism lost internationally, and it is winning in the United States. And I just will add one other thing, a revelation that came to me only in the last few years. I wish I had realized it sooner in life, but I didn't. Uh, the human being does not yearn to be free. The human being yearns to be taken care of. I should have known that. I guess it's when it came to me when I wrote my commentary on the book of Exodus and the Israelites get out of Egypt within a month, they're screaming, we want to go back to Egypt. The food was better. They didn't give a damn about being free. They gave a damn about eating what they wanted. People prefer to be well-fed slaves to free people who have to find their own food. And obviously, I'm not talking starvation. I'm just talking finding your own food. They were not starving in the desert, the Israelites. It's an ancient lesson. I repeat, most people do not yearn to be free. Freedom is a value, not an instinct. And we have not taught it as a value for three generations since World War II. The greatest generation was not great in its forgetting how to teach what America stood for. They were great in defending America, and, and I don't even blame them. People don't teach the normative. They think it will continue. People think what, what they're living through will be permanent. And Reagan was right. We are always one generation away losing freedom. Does that suggest that the future is, you know, it, again, there's been a kind of a view, it's called a sort of a Whiggish view of history, that the history of human sort of politics, if you like, is a sort of steady march towards freedom and liberty and democracy and, you know, famously captured by the end of history idea by Francis Fukuyama at the end of the Cold War obviously much misquoted and much misrepresented. And we should be fair to Frank, you know, a lot of what he said was not, you know, there will no longer be any political conflict and everybody will think the same thing. He didn't say that. But he did absolutely capture the idea that had been an animating spirit through much of history, this idea that this was man was progressing in this way. Uh, is what you just said there that actually man doesn't necessarily yearn to be free, but actually yearns to be taken care of. 
Does that suggest now that, that actually that what we're seeing, and there's a lot of interest in this on the right, by the way, in this kind of idea of a sort of a benevolent kind of controlling authority, and as well as obviously the left believes in a kind of technocratic authoritarianism. Does that mean, do you think that that actually, I mean, how do we, those of us who believe in liberty and believe in exactly, believe it as a value, how do we challenge that idea that actually, well, I'm not all that concerned about liberty as long as you can give me food to eat and shelter to live in and security to live amongst? That is what we used to call the $64,000 question. I, I can tell you how PragerU does it and how I do it, and we do it uh, very, very successfully. We have a billion views a year, and most of the viewers are under 35. That is why they fear allowing us free speech. Uh, when I speak at college campuses, I often will say, I'm very glad I'm here because I can undo your four years of education in an hour and a half. And, and I can. And they know that. Why do they fear conservatives coming to campuses? When Ben Shapiro went to Berkeley, why did they spend $600,000 on security, which is unbelievable? They're so afraid. Correctly, the left lives in an intellectual balloon. One pinprick, it bursts. And that's why it is so critical not to allow us to say whatever we believe whether it's on COVID and lockdowns. I said that the lockdowns were the greatest historical mistake ever made. I distinguished it from evil. I said mistake. Turns out to have done evil, but I still call it a mistake. And proven, among other things, by Sweden and by the damage done to children with closed schools for nearly two years. But anyone who said it was declared a purveyor of misinformation. And doctors who believed in hydroxychloroquine and zinc and in ivermectin risk losing their licenses. The first time, I believe, in American medical history, doctors could not prescribe an almost utterly safe prescriptive drug. Uh, hydroxychloroquine is on the list of WHO's 10, I think, safest and most important drugs in the world. And all of a sudden, a doctor cannot decide to prescribe it. We have to teach young people liberty is a value. And you young people, in many cases, you are opting to be slaves. A lot of them won't hear it or don't give a damn. You're going to give me free tuition? You can have my soul. You can own me. That's fine with me. But at least let us tell them this. We're going to take a short break right there, but we'll be back shortly with more with Dennis Prager, commentator, author, and of course, radio talk show host. Stay with us. So how do we get AI right? Well, we need the right volume of data, the software to train it, and massive compute power, or... Another one bites the dust. Are you ready? Hey, are you ready for this? Are you hanging on the edge of your seat? But with HPE GreenLake, we get access to supercomputing to power AI at the scale we need, helping generate better insights. All right! Nice teamwork, guys. Search HPE GreenLake. I'm back with Dennis Prager, commentator, author, and radio talk show host. You mentioned COVID, and I wanted to talk to you a little bit briefly because I know you've written a bit about a lot about this too. Is and one of the things that strikes me very much over the last few years, particularly with COVID, but with many other issues too, climate change is one of them. Is the delegitimation of dissent on all of these issues by 
claims to science and saying you can't really disagree with us, you're not allowed to disagree with us because the science is quote unquote settled, right? So this was true on climate change. For the record, I'll say it, climate change I think is real, a significant element of it is man-made, there are things we can do about it, I think the alarmism is massively overdone. But if you say that, if you challenge the full kind of litany, the full canon of climate change doctrine, you are labelled a climate denier and you're denying science. If you challenge lockdowns, if you challenge the efficacy of forcing people to stay in their homes or wear masks, you're going against the science, you're being a bigot. If you challenge vaccinations, and again, for the record, I'll say it, I'm vaccinated. I think the vaccines have been proven on the whole to be effective against severe illness. But I also understand there are people who have legitimate concerns about the vaccinations. But if you voice those concerns, you're not challenged for having a conflicting opinion, a dissenting opinion. You're denounced for being anti-science. And it does seem to me that the authoritarian left, they use that now. They claim science. And unfortunately... Too many people in the science community seem to be way too willing to subscribe to this and to endorse this view. The human being is flawed. This is a big issue of mine that the second most important question in life is human nature good. The first most important question is, does God exist? Second is, are human beings basically good? If you believe people are basically good, then you don't fight your nature and then the battle for a good world is lost. One of the normative characteristics of human nature is cowardice. The vast majority of humans are born cowards. You have to learn to be brave. Most people do not learn to be brave. Courage is the rarest of the good traits. There are many kind people, many nice people, many honest people. There are very few courageous people. So the average person in medicine is a coward. The average person in law, the average politician, the average journalist. There is no profession, perhaps the most cowardly profession is college presidents, but it's a, an extremely close competition with sports writers. That's the reason. They're cowards. Doctors are really on board with giving 16-year-old girls mastectomies on healthy breasts because they said they're a boy? Why is there not an outcry on the part of doctors about the mutilation of healthy young girls by other doctors? Because they're cowards. The average doctor doesn't think it's right. Look, it's very depressing for me to tell you all of these things. <laughs> My brother's a professor of medicine, and he's a wonderful human being, and he has saved countless lives. None of my attacks on the medical field are easy because I'm so close to somebody who's a very prestigious member of that profession. But it, it is what it is. Cowardice is the human norm. And we have to figure out how to make more courageous people. But back to your point, when I just wanted to note when you said authoritarian left, that that's redundant. There was no non-authoritarian left. There were non-authoritarian liberals. I have a column every week. I have a thousand of them up on uh, the internet. One of my columns is 32 questions to ask people to determine if they're leftists or liberals, because I think the distinction is very, very significant, even though liberals through brainwashing and cowardice still vote for the left. They have nothing in common with the left. All of my liberal relatives, and that's nearly all of them, except, thank God, my wife and children, Nearly all of my relatives are liberal. Maybe one is a leftist. And they all think it's a bad idea 
that Columbia University has an all-black dormitory and all-black graduation exercises, but they will vote Democrat no matter what. I do want to talk to you a little bit about religion, and we've talked about it a little bit, and I, and I wonder whether all the data seems to suggest that Americans are becoming much less formally religiously observant in terms of, you know, opinion polls that measure how many people go to church or synagogue or mosque, go to a place of worship, or even those who self-identify as atheists, that number is growing. But I wonder whether you think, first of all, how much is that responsible for what we're seeing, all the, both this assault on American values that we've seen in the last 20 or 30 years, but also back to what we were talking about earlier, whether it's been replaced by this new kind of secular religion, environmentalism, racial justice, all this kind of woke stuff. I mean, I, one of my favorite lines from one of my historians is, you know, that, that we used to think that the wars of religion went away in the sort of 16th and 17th century. They didn't. The labels changed and, you know, it became, you know, kind of just different ideologies, but they were essentially kind of pursued with the same religious zeal. Do, do you think that's what's going on right now, that we're seeing the, the traditional, the Judeo-Christian tradition particularly increasingly eclipsed for a lot of people, a lot of younger people in particular, by these new secular religions? And, and are we now involved in that kind of, if you, for want of a better word, that kind of modern religious struggle? It's entirely how I understand it. And I believe the left understands it that way, too. They know that their only enemy is organized religion. And specifically in the West, that means Christianity. They understand that the demise of Christianity is the victory of the left. And I say this as a religious Jew who's not a Christian. Truth is truth. I fight for Christianity because I know that the West is doomed. And if the West is doomed, the Jews are doomed. American Jews are largely very foolish. And it's, it's very depressing for me to say that, having devoted so much of my life to Jewish causes. But Again, truth is truth. Not to realize how special Jews have been treated in the United States of America from the beginning. This has been the greatest country outside of their own that Jews have ever lived in in, in 3,000 years of history. And for the ADL to become another woke, America is a piece of crap organization is sickening. It is, I hate ingratitude. Every leftist is an ingrate. In fact, I have said often on my radio show, you get a BA in ingratitude, a master's in ingratitude, and a doctorate in ingratitude when you go to a, a university in the West and especially in the United States. So yes, it is fundamentally religious. Orthodox Jews, and I'm not Orthodox. I'm observant, but I'm not fully Orthodox. So I have no ax to grind. Orthodox Jew, evangelical Christian, traditional Catholics, none of them believe that there are more than two genders. Only people in left-wing religion or left-wing secularism believe that gender is an infinite spectrum. How come science didn't know this 20 years ago? Now, one scientist in history said gender was a spectrum, that it was not binary. So this notion, science, science tells you that there's male and female. Is sex a spectrum among other mammals? We're the only mammal that doesn't have a fixed sex, but it shows you the power of repetition. Anyway, no religious person says men menstruate. You have to be secular or left-wing religion. That's because of the Chesterton quote, whether or not he actually said it, I don't know, but it's attributed to him. When people stop believing in God, they don't believe in nothing they believe in anything. Look, Dennis, we've talked in very broad and political, philosophical terms about history. We haven't talked much about immediate politics, but I do want to ask about Donald Trump and the Republican Party in particular. Look, you were not a supporter of Donald Trump initially when he ran for president. You supported him, obviously, when he was the Republican nominee. He, you thought he was obviously better than Hillary Clinton. You supported a lot of what he did as president. We're now entering a kind of critical phase as we come up to the midterms and decisions are being made about who runs again in 2020. 
well, whether Trump runs again in 2024, who might oppose him. It seems to me that Trump brought to politics a lot of things that Republicans had just not been able to tap into before. And he was able to tap into a degree of frustration and resentment among so many Americans that he was actually brilliantly actually able to articulate and to bring that forward. And he did you know, many things that many people approved of when he was president. I do wonder, though, whether his obsession, let's call it that, with the election and having lost the election, again, let me say for the record, there were lots of strange things went on in that election, but I don't think anybody ever proved that that election was stolen. And secondly, what happened on January the 6th, in my view, again, was a disgrace. But his obsession with relitigating that, is that something you think that makes it impossible for him to be the right standard bearer for the Republican Party in the future? There are other candidates, of course. Or what's your view? Do you think Trump has every right to to have a go again? Here is my view. My view is that he was the greatest president since Abraham Lincoln, and I hope he doesn't run. I don't assess presidents by their personal behavior or my assessment of their character. It is of, of virtually no interest to me. The number of nice people who have done damage in history is almost equal to the number of nice people. The naivete, including many conservatives, and the obsession with Trump's character, as if, first of all, they're gods and they know his character. And to the extent that I know character, I stand before God Almighty in my belief that Joe Biden is way inferior a human being to Donald Trump. But it doesn't matter. The stuff that has come out about Martin Luther King and sexual activity has not diminished my belief that he did great things for this country, that he prevented a racial war. John F. Kennedy had orgies in the White House, and it is of no interest to me whatsoever because it was kept secret. I don't give a damn about these people's private lives. I think the obsession with it is... uh political immaturity. So none of that matters to me. I assess presidents like I do surgeons. Does he do good surgery? I don't ask how he treats his parents, even though that's important to me. I think honor your parents is in the Ten Commandments. No, I don't think it. I know it. So when I go to a surgeon, I never ask, is he a fine man? I ask, is he a fine surgeon? I hope he's a fine man too, but frankly, I'll take a non-fine man who's a great surgeon over a fine man who's a mediocre surgeon. And I said that the whole time with his presidency. He did so much good for the world. I asked Neil Ferguson, one of the greatest living historians, he's even admired to the best of my knowledge by liberals, not by leftists. He was at Harvard and he's now moved to this Hoover Institution. And I asked him on my radio show, I had no idea what he would say, none. I was so curious though, because I respect him. And I said, Professor Ferguson, do you think Putin would have invaded Ukraine if Donald Trump were president? Without breathing, he said no. And I agree with him. Donald Trump brought peace to many parts of the Middle East. He prevented Putin from invading because Putin didn't know what this madman named Trump might do. And I don't want American presidents liked. I want them feared. So he was a great president. What his speech in Warsaw defending Western civilization was one of the greatest speeches given by a president in the last 100 years. But I do not want him to run again because he sucks the air out of the room. And I have only one concern, and it is not Donald Trump, despite my praise of his presidency. It is defeating the left. And I don't think 
that he can defeat the left as perhaps another Republican nominee could. And that is all I care about. I just want to push back slightly on that because, again, I think a lot of people would agree with you. Donald Trump has a list of achievements, many of them you've outlined, which I think a lot of people would praise. Yeah, the issue is, to a lot of people, though, I think, is that he's not a question of whether he's a nice man or a good character. And God knows, as you say, America's had terrible characters who've been actually quite effective presidents. And we can go back all the way back to the founding fathers for you know insights into that. But it's not that he's a nice character or a good person or he does nice things or whatever. It's that specifically particularly after the election, after 2020, and refusing to accept the election results and then doing what he did to um, rouse up, should we say, his supporters to do what they eventually did on January the 6th. That's not more about his character or his personality. That is about using the office to do something that had never been done in American history before, which is to sort of essentially to try to block the peaceful transition of power for a president to try to stay in office even after the Electoral College had actually voted him out. That is not about his niceness or his decency. That is about whether or not he's prepared to observe constitutional procedures. And that's what worries a lot of Republicans, isn't it? And aren't they right to be worried about that? I don't know anybody, I'm sure they exist, but I don't know anyone who became anti-Trump after January 6th, but was pro-Trump. What we generally had was never Trumpers or people who couldn't stand the man before January 6th. And his behavior since January 6th has been a sort of uh, of confirmation. I don't know about that, Dennis. I think there were people who were prepared to tolerate Trump who weren't particularly enthusiastic about him, including many voters, I would submit, who were prepared to tolerate Trump. But actually, after the election, particularly after January 6th, are not prepared to tolerate them. But they, they were never Trump. Look, you may well be right, but since I've already said I hope he doesn't run, I'm not sure you know what, what else you would like me to say. I did say on my radio show over and over, obviously, with no good result, that he should be preoccupied with the Georgia vote, the runoff votes, and not with the last election. And I believe that at least one of the seats could have been saved and the country saved thereby had he been in Georgia the whole time just saying how important it is to keep a Republican majority in the Senate. But he didn't. He was preoccupied with what he believed. And I'm sorry, I do go on record as saying there is reason to believe that there was massive fraud. There was no proof. That is correct. I just said there is reason to believe. But there is no excuse for being preoccupied with it at the expense of the battle against the left. And the preoccupation, his obsession with it, which I somewhat understand, but I do not think is wise, is why I don't want him to run again. And I do think it hurt the country because of the Georgia vote. We could talk a lot more, but Dennis Prager, thank you so much indeed. A lot of fascinating topics which uh, you go into all the time on your show and in your writings. Thank you very much indeed for joining us, Dennis Prager. It's been a joy. Thank you very much. Well, that's it for this week's episode of Free Expression with me, Jerry Baker, from the Wall Street Journal Opinion Pages. Thanks very much for listening. Please join us again next week for another exploration of the issues driving our world. Thank you and goodbye. This message comes from Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, destination-focused dining, and cultural enrichment on board and on shore. And every Viking voyage is all-inclusive, with no children and no casinos. Discover more at viking.com.